Welcome to the Crown Council Mentor of the Month program. This is Steve Anderson. Our mentor this month brings decades of experience and wisdom to dentistry, both as a clinician and as a thought leader and visionary. Dr. Terry Dickinson spent 30 years in private practice in Houston, Texas, and then went on to spend the last 15 years as the executive director of the Virginia Dental Association, interacting with professionals, lobbyists, legislators, and the business community from all over the country. His background has put him in a position to see the profession and its future from a very unique vantage point. In this special edition of the Mentor of the Month, Dr. Dickinson shares his perspectives on the future of the dental profession that will help you plan, project, and be prepared for what is to come. So with what he calls the changing face of the profession, survival is option, optional, we welcome Dr. Terry Dickinson as this month's Crown Council Mentor of the Month. Dr. Dickinson, welcome. Thank you very much. It's uh, indeed an honor to uh, be a Mentor of the Month for such an auspicious group of, of practitioners. Um, I, you know, I really believe that we're at this critical time in our history, probably unlike um, any other that the profession has experienced. But I do believe also at the same time that we do have this great opportunity to define who we are as a profession and clearly define our destiny. You know, we just simply cannot maintain our complacency, but we must create a strategy that will allow us to define our future as a profession. I've had a interest in history and what has transpired over the last, I guess, 45 years now that I've been in the profession. And I've um, become kind of a... Uh, watcher of trends and data points um, as we move through this time um, in, in the profession. So about, uh, I really got more involved in this about three years ago when I was asked by um, the head of the curriculum committee at the VCU School of Dentistry on what I thought the future of the profession might look like. And I asked, um, the person that uh, wanted me to speak, I said, why would you want me to speak to the uh, curriculum committee about this? I didn't, didn't know curriculum committees would be interested in this. And she said that they wanted to make sure that what they were teaching these students that were going to, at that time, graduate in four years and um, so on, uh, that they were teaching them in an appropriate manner that's going to prepare them uh, for that uncertainty of the future um, that I was seeing. Because we as a profession tend to have this tunnel vision uh, that unfortunately blocks out a lot of the outside world um, in such a way as uh, we don't pick up these trends and are ill-prepared uh, to address uh, the changes uh, that are occurring around us. And if you think well, you're practitioners think they're going to escape this change and the disruption that it's creating. Um, I really have some bad news for you. There's no way you're going to escape. It will affect you in some way. So the purpose today is one to educate you on what I see is going on in inside and outside of the profession 
and how you how you take all this information in and do something with it that's going to continue to make you successful and prepare you for the future to make sure you sustain um, your um, manner of doing practice uh, in the way that you best see fit. A lot of this information I'm sharing with you is, you know, courtesy of of one of the best hires the American Dental Association made, and that was uh, the hiring of Marco Vujicic, who's head of the ADA's Health Policy Institute. A uh, very bright guy, used to be with the World Bank, and um, he's an economist and uh, has provided us with so much information that allows us to understand some of the trends uh, and some of the forces that are uh, affecting the profession uh, as we see it today. Um, so thanks to Marco, and, and I give him all the credit for helping me understand so much of of this information in a way that um, allows us to uh, share this information uh, with a lot of people and hopefully in a way that uh, um, will be beneficial to them. Out of this um, talk before the curriculum committee and, then, and to give you an idea of the interest, the, I was originally given 45 minutes and I think uh, two hours later we finally had to stop. Um, because they ask lots and lots of questions uh, about why I thought certain things were going to happen. And uh, so that really gave me a lot of encouragement. Uh, as a consequence of that, I was asked to speak to the um, second year students as part of their practice management session. So what I did is I created a two and a half to three hour um, program uh, to speak to the second year students on some of the things that were transpiring um, in the profession that they were not aware of and then talked about the trends that I was seeing to give them some idea of what world they were going to be entering in in, in two years, in a short two years. And I felt like it was our responsibility to prepare them for that uncertainty so that when they graduate, they didn't look back at the school and say you didn't really, you gave me clinical skills, the basic clinical skills, but you really didn't prepare me uh, for the world that I'm going to be practicing in. Um, and I, I didn't want them leaving BCU uh, with that kind of attitude. So I've continued that series. So what I do is I give the second year uh, class and then this year or last year I picked up the uh, seniors for the first time, so they were the original class that I did two years ago, and so I gave them another uh, update, uh, two-hour update on what had transpired since the time I'd given them the original uh, talk some two years ago. And so it really gives them a little better idea of, of what's going on in the profession and why is it different, what's driving those changes that we're seeing, and, and help them make some of the choices they're going to have to make um, as they get uh, into the practice um, outside of the school. The interesting thing is um, I always get to go to uh, graduation and I always read and see where these young men and women are, are going after they graduate. And over this last 45 years, um, I've seen a trend toward more and more of these young young people going into some type of GPR, AEGD, um, hospital program, 
uh, specialty programs, military um, programs, such that <clears throat> there's a relatively small cohort of the graduating class that is actually um, graduating and, and going into a private practice situation. Uh, I very seldom anymore see uh, someone graduating and going and starting a practice. It just simply doesn't happen um, much anymore at all. I think that would be a real uh, rarity if we saw that. So um, one of the goals was to educate these students so that they would be have a better chance of being successful uh, in the future. And then I started doing it to um, uh, groups in organized dentistry, our board of directors and other groups like that um, to uh, kind of create this sense of urgency to get them to pay attention uh, to what was happening in the profession and how best can we prepare ourselves as a profession, as an association to serve our members in the best way. Because I don't want us uh, to end up, you know, uh, like so many of these um, in the past that we've called highly successful uh, companies, uh, such as Kodak, uh, Borders Books, Blockbuster, Payphones, People Airlines, Nokia, I mean the list goes on and on. Uh, these were formerly once, I mean, standouts. Think of Kodak. I mean, when you thought of, of um, photograph, I mean, it was Kodak. It was the Brownie, it was the Instamatic. Um, I mean, they defined what photography was. Well, there's there's simply a footnote history today, simply because they failed to take they failed to take the actions they needed to, to kind of recreate themselves, reinvent themselves for the future world. They had an opportunity. As a matter of fact, they had an opportunity to get into digital uh, photography. And the people that make those kind of decisions uh, decided that was not the direction they wanted to go to. As a result of that, they are basically um, a footnote in history. Um, and so I would ask you to also think about, you know, in the future, uh, about companies such as Best Buy and Sears and Target, Macy's, Toys R Us, Sony, and others. Will they be around tomorrow? I I would question about whether some of those uh, will be around tomorrow, or they will be, or will they become more like Kodak or Borders Books, um, Blockbuster? I mean, the world is changing so fast. Uh, change has such a magnitude um, effect on how we do business, who we do business with and how do we prepare for the challenges of the future. And so companies that fail to do that um, are simply not going, to, not going to be around in the future. I think if you read the newspaper, Target um, is real, recognizes that they're in crisis. They did, they redefined themselves several years ago and, and really increased their sales, but uh, Lately, they've had some challenges, one with the security problems that they had with their credit cards and um, just the way they're doing business. These other companies are now coming into that market and challenging target for that segment uh, of the buying public. So you have to be constantly vigilant uh, to make sure that what you, the service 
or products that you're providing to the public are appropriate and they're ahead of the game uh, and then people see them um, as something of value. So the same thing is true for dentistry. Um, some of the things that we're seeing uh, happening in companies outside the profession, um, people are judging and, and looking at the profession and looking at how they get their health care in a much different way than they used to. So yes, it does affect us also and it's best that you be prepared uh, to deal with those uh, issues because this change is occurring all around us and whether you like it or not, uh, you're being pulled into that vortex of, of change. Um, when, you know, when I graduated from dental school a long time ago, um, most everybody got out. I was in the service for a couple of years and got out and what you did, you went into solo practice. You got a loan, you opened up your practice and you, you practiced till you retired or, or whatever. Um, and, but even in the early 90s, um, solo, the true solo practitioner was that comprised only about 67% uh, of dentists. And now we're probably in around the mid-50s range. Um, so the solo practitioner is, is going the way of uh, some of the uh, extent, extinct animals um, uh, that we're aware of. So I, I really suspect that number is going to decrease fairly rapidly over the next 10 to 15 years. Uh, I'm just, um, as I look at these numbers and what's happening outside there and how practices are viewed and how they're put together, I, I just really think that uh, we're going to see dramatic changes in that. And if you fit, and I imagine, and I don't know, but I would think that probably um, most members of the Crown Council would fit into that category in some manner. Uh, though you may be in some small groups, um, but um, if that's true and you only have maybe 10 or 15 years uh, um, in your practice that um, left, then um, you're probably going to be all right. You'll probably be able to cruise through and, and, and be okay, but if, if you've got longer than that or you've got a son coming in, uh, uh, then you need to really pay attention. Um, and look around you and see what's happening because I really think the solo practitioner uh, in the solo practice is really going to struggle um, to uh, be able to sustain um, what they've had in the past. Doesn't mean it's impossible, but I, I really see uh, a challenge uh, in that sector. But also, and, and so it's really about your sons and daughters um, and all these other young people that are to follow them because I do think we do have some kind of responsibility to them to prepare for the future. And um, so I think we need to be able to, to pay attention to what's going on so that we can help these young men and women uh, as they, they're, they're going to be the future uh, of our profession and we need to make sure that we help them uh, in any way that we can. So today we're, let's talk about these major drivers that um, what I think will affect what our future looks like. Um, there are probably eight major ones that um, I think really going to have major effects on, on the future. Um, and, and this is not necessarily in this order, but in somewhat of an order, but in an increasing order, uh, the rise of new dental schools, um, 
And we're seeing um, projections several years ago by IDEA that uh, in the next 20 years there'd be 20 new dental schools. And um, uh, so I think that's a um, driver that's going to affect and, and have a spillover effect in, in many ways, and we'll talk about that a, a little bit more. Um, and secondly, the change in oral health status. We're seeing uh, through the efforts of prevention and fluoride, and, and um, there's a number of things, I think, on the horizon, um, whether it be genetic or DNA manipulation or whatever, or you know, biochemical uh, approach, that we're going to see dramatic effects on um, the, the disease process itself. And, and that, could, that, that could be a real uh, major effect uh, on disease management in, in the future and have a cumulative effect um, on the practice uh, of dentistry uh, in the future. Um, another one is the effect of the Affordable Care Act. Um, most dentists probably don't know a whole lot about it unless you've had insurance uh, through them, but uh, there is some uh, certainly, uh, some fact on the, the dental profession, one being is the number of children, um, since it's one of the ten essential benefits um, that will have access to uh, a dental care. Um, and it's still not clear how many, what the numbers are going to be um, in that uh, sector. Uh, adults in some states will uh, be able to get benefits. Um, Certainly, I think most states, they'll have that opportunity. It's obviously going to be based on cost. I'm not sure that's going to have a large effect um, on dental practice, but it will have some, some effect. Next, uh, shifts in dental care utilization. And that's how, uh, what's happening that we see across the board and how people uh, are accessing the system, um, number-wise and, and age-wise. Um, what's happening with that. Um, the rise in student debt. I think that's a, um, uh, that, that's one of the, probably the bigger ones that bothers me because I can't come up with any kind of uh, solution that makes any, any sense um, that's going to help these, these kids. Um, I'll tell you a story. I've got an um, a email that I've got from a first year um, dental student and this just finishing uh, her first year and um, I think this is very telling what she's uh, what she's saying here she says I was hoping you could give me some advice potentially point me in the right direction I'm currently at uh, blank school of dentistry and have taken out 114,000 in loans just for my first year by the time I graduate I will be four hundred and sixty thousand dollars deep in loans not including interest I've also been hearing that depending on the location, associate dentists straight out of school are facing offers around 80 to 100, 110,000 unless they go into corporate dentistry, which would be around 120,000. Coming into dental school, I was not too concerned about the income as I assumed it's not too much of an issue. However, I'm coming to realize that with students with high loans, it may actually be something to be concerned about. In, my, in your opinion, would it be worth it for me to continue in this expected path, at least financially? While I love dentistry and enjoy what we learn in dental school, I actually think I would be just as interested and passionate with another career in medicine with significant pa patient interaction. 
Though dentistry is known for having a better work-life balance, I feel that the pressure of paying back loans and opening up a private practice are both significant challenges in their own right. I'm now debating whether it would be better for me, assuming I find a job to be something I can see do it myself doing, to take a leave of absence from dental school, study for the MCAT, cut my losses from the first year loan, try to apply to medical school instead. Medical school is significantly cheaper. Even the most expensive ones would yield a loan of less around 220000 instead of 460000 And when you get a an email like that from a person that's really struggling about which they're at this fork in the road, so to speak, and they really don't know what to do, uh, that's very concerning because of the amount of debt. And you can talk about, well, should they take out that much or what it, what's she spending on in the school, but, you know, she is at a school that, that does have a high tuition and consequently um, they're going to pay more. Um, I gave this talk um, well, several years ago to an all-female study club and we're in the Tidewater area and after the uh, talk was over, because I talked a lot about student debt, I had a young lady come up to me and said she had $385,000 worth of student debt she was facing uh, because of Again, she went to a school that um, had a $80,000 a year tuition, plus and plus, and um, she didn't have a great job. I mean, she had a, a job, but uh, her take-home pay was um, $6,000 a month, and um, she her student loan payment was 3000 so it puts her pretty close to the 200% federal poverty level. So, and, and I mean, you could tell in the look in her face how much struggling she was going on, how frustrating it was, um, you know, for her, because she said that she went to dental school because one, she, you know, had a great dentist and mentor and, and really loved the profession, but she said, I thought I'd graduate, get a great job, be able to buy a car and, and buy a home, and she said, I've been able to, to do neither. Um, and that just really, that really concerns me. Uh, I, I just, I wish I had a, a good answer um, because it's a very complex um, piece uh, depending on so many things. But uh, when these kids are coming out with, you know, 200 plus thousand dollars of debt, uh, it, it just really creates um, a lot of stress in them and, and uh, plays into a lot of decisions that, that they make about their future. So I think we really need to pay attention to that. The new delivery care models, and uh, we'll talk more about that, uh, that's the DSOs and corporate dentistry and stuff like that, shifts in dental care financing and, and the economy. Um, the economy, I think, probably, um, to me, is probably the the biggest thing that that concerns me um, and we're I think we're finally maybe coming out of that a little bit but uh, if you look at um, what's happened like for instance with the dental care expenditures um, what what we see is this leveling off since 2008 of the um, um, annual dental expenditures uh, per patient. And um, um, so 
the recession happened in the 2007-2008 time frame. And so after that, beginning in that, and after that we've seen this leveling off of, uh, of these per capita dental expenditures. So, but when we look back at um, some of the earlier things that uh, have happened, you know, we've seen this annual growth rate um, in healthcare, particularly dentistry, uh, drop from a positive 3.9% growth rate from 1990 to 2002 to a negative 0.3% from 2008 to 2011. Again, this is another seminal uh, sign of, of the economy affecting this. And when we look back at the last um, 15 years, well, actually this, we actually started seeing the effects of, of um, feeding into the economy and how it's affect bottom lines and, and patient flow and all of this other stuff actually around 2002. It actually happened about five to six years prior to uh, the economic meltdown uh, that we say. I think you know, there are a number of reasons for that, but I do think one of the reasons, in my opinion, was 9-11-2001. I think that probably affected people's buying habits and how they looked at the world and their security and how they wanted to spend their time and money in the dramatic way that we're seeing the effects down the road. I think the economic turndown in 2007-2008 only exacerbated that feeling. And so I think people and how they spend their money uh, uh, look at the whole, how they buy things and the value they expect uh, change forever. I'm not sure it will ever go back the way it used to be. But that doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. I think we, the other thing we've seen is a decline in dental care expenditures by those aged 21 to 64, but we've seen a slight increase in spending by those in ages 0 to 20. So that's a good sign. But the group that's shown real growth have been those aged 65 and older. So if I were in practice today and I had some holes in my appointment book, one of the things, one of the sectors I would be thinking about would be those, it depends on if you want to work on kids, but kids usually bring parents with them and their friends, uh, is become more proficient in doing pediatric care, but I, the big one probably for Crown Council members would be geriatrics. Uh, I would really concentrate on how best to, to take care of that population sector uh, because that's the one group that is really showing real growth um, in the in the spending um, and appointments, the number of appointments in a dental office. So it gives you real, uh, real numbers uh, to um, put your arms around and, and say, well, if I concentrate on this sector, spend more time on it or whatever, you're, you're going to get a better um, uh, better return, and so it's using real data to be able to make those those kind of decisions, not just a guess. It's based on data. Um, now we've seen a drop in those adults, and that's the 20 to 64 
uh, from a high of 41% going to the dentist in 2003 to a 37% rate in, in 2010. So that's, uh, again, you're seeing that 4% drop in the number uh, of visits uh, that these adults. And again, I think that's uh, as a result of not only the economy, but their attitudes toward uh, how they spend their money uh, and the slight increase uh, in, in kids. Um, another sign has been the waiting time for appointments. Um, used to be in 2001, wait uh, almost 10 days to get, a, get an appointment. Uh, today, and when 2011, it, it dropped down in half uh, to five days. And um, I don't know how it is with your practitioners, but it would be interesting to track that same amount of time and, and see uh, if you see that same type of, of, of drop. So I suspect that uh, at least the uh, anecdotal evidence that I've heard from practitioners, because I always ask them, um, how long does it take to get a new patient in? If I called your office uh, tomorrow, when could you get me in? Uh, and so it's happened, you know, kind of across the board is that um, the times are, are continuing to drop. Um, and, and I guess one of the most important things that we look at uh, being in the practice and being a small business owner is that, uh, you know, what's the bottom line? What's our... Um, what's our take-home uh, pay uh, and what's happening to that. Um, again, when you look back on a chart in 2001, uh, starting in 2001, we saw this drop uh, in incomes, but it did pick up um, from 2003 to 2005 uh, to a high of an average, and this is GPs, uh, to $228,500. Um, that was in 2005. Then we saw this steady decline since then, reaching a low point in 2009 of $202,000, $100,000. Um, we don't currently have data past the 2009 time, but I suspect um, that has continued to drop down or it may have actually uh, leveled off uh, a little bit. So again, the point being I'm not too sure uh, with with rare exception, um, that we'll see um, a rapid growth um, um, in um, the business of dentistry, except for those sectors that we've discussed, and that's the adults over 65 and the kids, um, those younger uh, cohorts uh, that would be uh, coming to the practice. So the economy has had a, a dramatic effect on the bottom line and um, by looking at all these data points that we've seen and, 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 and it could be there's more stuff and I mean it's the, um, the number of visits that patients are going into the number of cleanings they're getting a year or dropping the, um, the the dollar value per patient uh, is has dropped and leveling off uh, so the, all of these things are adding up to you got to pay attention from a management standpoint and be the best businessman that you business person that you can be and you've got to be a really quick thinker about how to manage when you see all this change going on and you've got to and I'm sure they all your members have I mean really good systems in place 
that um, allow them to keep a close eye on what's happening to the to practice so that they can quickly uh, address um, those trends if they're starting to see trending down in certain sectors that are important to the bottom line that they sit down and have that conversation uh, about why that's occurring because it just doesn't happen serendipitously there is a reason why uh, those things happen and you've got to address them quickly and you've got to be agile in your thinking uh, to be able to pick them up before they get out of control and then you're chasing all the time so that's a really critical part um, based upon the economy. Other thing we're seeing uh, really is a shift in dental care financing and that's part of that has to do with third-party payer issues. Uh, the traditional dental benefit plans um, that we're all familiar with. Now, how many of, of the uh, members um, are, are par dentist in those plans? Um, I don't know, but uh, let's just assume that there uh, are, are some that do um, are par providers for these dental benefits plans. What we're seeing with that is we're seeing a trending down of the usage of that traditional product. Um, but um, in spite of that, I do see that these commercial dental plans are they're using more what we're seeing more selective networks. Um, they're demanding increased accountability to data and performance measures. They're pressuring providers to reduce costs. Um, so they they're squeezing down on, on the providers, now, not necessarily on the administration uh, and, and the people at the top. Um, they're not uh, squeezing down on their salaries. Those continue to to go up for sure. Um, I'll share a story with you about a dentist that called me after seeing my presentation and he, he, he wanted to know what I thought he should do at this point in his career. He had like four years left. He was not a PAR uh, provider um, and he, but he had seen over the last two or three years that his um, net was uh, decreasing and so he was a little concerned because he, he had these four years he had to you know, really get his um, uh, retirement accounts where he wanted them, so he could uh, um, retire and uh, be be careful and be certain that uh, all was going to be well. And and uh, uh, so he went through this whole. So he it really what he did by him watching that it really created this. It, it hit him and it created this sense of urgency in him, thinking he needed to really look at what was happening in you know, did he miss some of the signs? Well, obviously he did miss some of the signs, uh, but he still has time and the four years to be able to uh, try to get back on track. So we talked about a number of options that he could do as far as, you know, somebody buying, buying his practice and blending his practice into um, another type practice, um, a high-end practice, um, and two, uh, actually be becoming, taking more, um, uh, becoming a PAR provider for insurance programs. So at least he had some options uh, to be able to, to help himself to kind of get back on tra track. And everybody has to make that um, a decision in an individual manner uh, what's best for their practice. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to say you should or shouldn't take um, insurance plans. Um, it's just It just depends on the, the practice and the mechanics of the practice and, and how that's all based. Uh, what we're seeing a lot of, starting to see a lot of, are these uh, different different types of, of payer um, 
plans and from the pure discount plan um, which is sold by a company um, that may charge uh, oh, let's say ten dollars a month uh, and you get discounts similar or greater than a traditional dental benefit benefit plan so you think ten dollars a month um, for a single person uh, that's that's pretty pretty cheap I would advise, I would advise someone to get that if, if that's in fact uh, you could find a, a, a good good or great practitioner to with discounts that certainly would be to their their benefit um, but there are obviously a lot of questions that could be asked asked around that but these companies have big provider bases I mean you know I'm, I'm talking you know 25, 30,000 uh, providers uh, that will accept these plans, and and there are a number of them, and that, that's just one. But there are a number of others that have larger bases than 25 or 30,000. Um, I suspect we'll see more of those. And so, when you tie that kind of back together, you, it makes sense why why there would be uh, plenty of providers out there because if schools are putting out perhaps too many students um, and you know, and they need to pay off these huge debts. Uh, they're going to be signing up uh, for these plans. The other thing, interesting thing, we're seeing are these kind of hybrid things that they're dental benefit plans set up inside practices or practice, you know, practice or practices. And it's really a patient membership program, which can be administered by any individual private practice. Uh, it's really a cost-effective option uh, that preserves the doctor-patient relationship. And uh, you know, at the same time, provides this competitive project in the consumer-driven healthcare marketplace. So, for patients without dental insurance or who want another option, uh, patients receive for the set annual membership fee certain prevention-based services and discounts on all other services, along with other perks uh, like a membership. And so, there's no third-party involvement at all and it can fit into any new or existing practice without changing anything. I think that's a very interesting model um, and um, we're starting to see that um, uh, happen and uh, start out on the west coast. Uh, I suspect we'll see a lot more of that. Uh, if I were in practice I would look at that really close. Um, it's, it's a very interesting model and it allows you control and you cut out that um, third-party payer and um, you also might be able to convert some of the patients that are um, that have a traditional um, third-party benefit plan and convert them to your in-office uh, model so I think it's a lot of there's going to be a lot of innovation in that field and I think you just really need to pay attention and see if any any of those parts fit, might fit in into your practice model the next thing I think we're seeing a lot of these dental care delivery models. Uh, you know, this everybody's heard about the mid-level provider model. Provider model it started up in well, it's been in uh, New Zealand for 80 years, I guess, um, but brought over into Alaska a um, number of years ago, eight or ten years ago, uh, for the um, Alaska native uh, villages, uh, where the only way you could get there is by boat or float plane um, and uh, to take care of all this uh, little disease that uh, unfortunately is in, in those villages. 
and now it's uh, migrated south to uh, Minnesota, um, University of Minnesota School of Dentistry, actually teaches um, uh, mid-level classes. Uh, they train next to traditional dental students and actually take the same uh, restorative exam um, on uh, the credits. I believe they take credits exam, but they take the same um, exam the dental students do. Um, so there's 20 or 30 of those out, I think, into the field now, and we still wait. You know, we'll we'll see how that works. But there's a lot of pressure in other areas. Uh, Maine's um, legislature just passed a law allowing that to to happen in, in Maine. So there's a lot of money behind this push. Uh, Pew and Kellogg, Macy, other foundations are putting a lot of money because they really think this is one of the answers to access to care. Whether it is or not, you know, certainly is a question I have. Um, but um, they seem to be intent on uh, pushing this idea uh, across the country. I expect you know the states that uh, to watch are New Mexico, Washington, Oregon, California, Kansas, New Hampshire. Uh, so we'll see more action uh, as we go along. And uh, I don't think it's going to go away uh, because of the money and these foundation behind it. Um, I don't think it'll have an effect on you. Uh, and the type of practices you have, but uh, I, I think it will, if it continues, will have a larger impact on the overall system. Um, so we'll we keep a close eye on that and see what happens uh, to that. And so the other part of this is the um, continue with the continuing rise of large group practices, and this can be in the form of a large group within the same facility, or a which was the original parts where a bunch of dentists would get together and and uh, we saw those kind of rise and fall. Now we're seeing them come back again or it could be a cluster of offices under a small ownership or a 40 to 50 office cluster, kind of an LLC type with individual owners clustered around one umbrella for negotiating with insurance plans, buying supplies, to having your own lab or to HR payroll, so it's kind of a multi-benefit plan. Um, and then we have the true DSO, the dental service organizations or the management service organizations, which may be managed by a separate dental management group, not dentists necessarily, um, which would take on same, some of the management issues of a practice or multiple practices in this case, and again, the HR, the rent, the lease, supplies, hours, negotiating contracts, and but with no clinical input. And then there is the corporate DSO, where equity money is used to purchase a number of practices under the corporate net, but supposedly without any input on the clinical decision-making process. So that brings up the question of expectations of stockholders and how that might affect the clinical side of the practice. Um, it's, um, there is a um, group practice out there that uh, probably one of the larger ones and um, it actually was purchased uh, by a Canadian um, teacher's pension fund. Um, so I guess the question is, I guess what the ex you know, what are the expectations of the Canadian Teachers Pension Fund? Uh, I'm sure they're like any other shareholders; they expect return on, on their dollar. So I guess that's the question that we we have about these 
group practices that have equity money in them is you know is there un could there be undue influence on uh, um, clinical decisions that are made in these practices? Uh, that's that's a question that's uh, concerning to uh, some, and uh, we we keep a close eye on that too. And what about solo practice? Well, even if it is, an, um, I suspect I, I would think a lot of the Crown Council practices are more the concierge type practices, um, but I, I kind of see struggles in the future uh, to maintain that model. Uh, maybe a decrease, I, I imagine there's probably a, about a segment, about 5% uh, of the market are these concierge uh, small practices, uh, upper end. Um, but I see that decreasing to maybe 1% over the next 5 to 10 years. Um, uh, and if you look at what's happened to some of the cosmetic practices um, when the economy went down, um, there was a lot of empty appointment times in those schedules um, because of the economy. And how that's going to affect those practices in the future remains to be seen. Um, but they're just not inflation-proof. Now, maybe there's a 0.1% at the very top who will continue to seek out the best and brightest. Uh, so if, if you're one of those, you will you know, continue to do well. I just think that that, um, that very top segment of, of, of the population uh, um, We'll want that, but you know, below that, I think we're going to see a drop off of uh, of how how that's viewed and and how they spend that money. And we talked some about uh, student debt. Uh, so I'll speak a little bit more about that. Uh, you know, here at VCU's, it's about two hundred thousand uh, average, and um, with private schools being much much higher. Um, so I think this is something that really concerns me, uh, is that these kids um, are coming out with these high debt loads and um, the amount of debt is, is having a great influence on them um, and their practice choices. So uh, if, if you think that, um, let's say for instance, dental benefits companies, um, or discount plans are going to run out of providers, think again, because there are enough of these young people coming out that have to have a source of income to pay those debts back. They're pretty much willing to do uh, take those as many plans as they can get to be able simply to service that debt. I mean, it really puts them in a bind and, and affects how they're going to make their choices. So that, again, um, concerns me, and I'm concerned about the increase in new dental schools uh, that I spoke to you about earlier, the 20 new in 20 years, um, because I'm, I think we kind of reached the tipping point in the number of dentists based on, on demand. Now, of course, there's a difference between demand and need, but if um, the current demand stays the same, um, I, I think we're kind of at the point that I think we probably got enough dentists. and um, I think the other, uh, if we continue to see these new schools come out and, and they, um, you know, let's say 20 schools and they put out, let's just say 50, I mean, that's throwing 1,000 back into the market. Uh, I think it's going to exacerbate an already concerning situation uh, with dentists trying to find a job. 
I mean, I've had a friend of mine in Atlanta tell me about a dentist or dentist down there having to do hygiene simply because they couldn't find a job otherwise. Now that that's really troubling to me uh, that they would um, they can't find a job and that they're not that they're doing hygiene, but that they are they can't find um, a position that adequately pays them, uh, you know, to so that they can pay back these um, big student loans. So that that is a big concern. Uh, we don't want this glut of these young dentists that are graduating that cannot uh, find a job that's going to allow them to pay off their student loans. We must really pay attention to that. We must speak up if we really feel like that we've reached a point that we're adequately taken care of, of the patient population that comes in our doors. And um, you know, if, if the demand increases, then we need to relook at that. But what the other thing we're seeing is that the average retirement age of dentists, um, I think in 2008, was around 64, and now it's up to age 69. So dentists are staying in uh, the pref profession uh, much longer uh, than they have in the past. And part of that has to do, obviously, with the, the economy and their retirement plans and the stock market and all this other stuff. Um, but what that does, it keeps them in the market longer than they used to be. And so that takes out of the market some of those practices that may have been sold are the opportunity for these young kids to come in and be in that practice. But if, if those practices have these openings and they have this increased or decreased wait time uh, to get a new uh, get in, uh, into a practice, uh, they're not going to be looking for to bring in another dentist uh, if they don't have the business to support that. So um, it, I, I just don't want us to get in a position where there's an overage um, of supply. Um, if it if it continues to go, you know, competition is going to increase, and uh, it's just it's going to become more of a buyer's market. They're going to be searching for uh, more value for less money, and expect you to increase your efficiency. So, um, Dr. Dixon, let me ask you a, a quick question around that. Uh -huh. If if you have an increase of the number of dental schools, which means you have more dentists coming into the market over the next you know, 10 to 15 years, then doesn't that create, does that create us ultimately then a seller's market because there will be more demand, you have more dentists looking for practices and there will be fewer practices for sale because you have more buyers than sellers. Have I got my logic wrong? No, you don't. Um, I mean, it's, it is just, um, it's, it's really interesting. Um, uh, what's going on in, in, in the marketplace with where you pushing these dentists out and um, dentists are staying in longer in practice and yeah. uh, they're eventually obviously going to sell their, their practice or hope to sell it um, but some you know for a while there several years ago it was a uh, um, they could come out and buy a practice pretty I mean 708, something like that. Dentists wanted to get out of practice. They'd practically give that away just to get out from under it. Um, but today, as we're starting, I mean, it's pretty still pretty flat, uh, but at least they're starting to fill their appointment books again. Um, but not enough so that they're willing to take on an associate. Maybe they right. were 10 years ago, they may have taken on an associate. We're not, not really 
seeing that. Um, so we just need to pay attention to that because, you know, I really feel like, again, like I said, we have this responsibility uh, to these young people uh, to hopefully create a future that's going to be as good to them as it was and is to us. But, you know, there's there's there are things out there that, that Dennis can do to be sustain the success that, you know, for instance, um, a physician, you know, 103 million patients see a physician but don't see a dentist. That's a market right there. 103 million patients see a physician but don't see a dentist. On the flip side of that, 27 million patients see a dentist but don't see a physician. So I see great opportunity there. Um, in so many ways, in working with, um, you know, it's been this two separate silos really, but I think there's some great opportunities if we move forward to do things in your practice that we would have never thought of 10 or 15 years ago. And, it, you know, we start, when we start doing blood pressure and oral cancer screenings and stuff like that, but I mean, there's so much stuff now we can do with um, diabetes screening and, and uh, hypertension and, um, high cholesterol and all these other things, I don't see any reason why a dentist can't do those things on those 27 million people that aren't seeing a physician and refer them to a physician. Because if the physician gets the idea that there's some astute dentists out there that understand healthcare and overall health and the role that, that oral health plays in that, uh, he may send some of those 103 million patients that don't see a dentist and think, you know, we've done everything we can on this, this disease process. There must be some other inflammatory process going on. You need to go see your dentist. And I think we need a more active role in that. Um, if I were, um, go ahead. Let me ask you a question. If I were, uh, looking at a 20-year planning horizon, if I'm in private practice today, maybe we can wrap up on this. For uh -huh. those, I think you've given us a real good perspective for those that are uh, maybe going to transition their practice in the next 10 to 15 years. But if I've got a planning horizon of you know, 20 to 25 years still, what would be your top two or three recommendations uh, that you would seriously consider in order to stay relevant, competitive, and at the front of your market? Well, first of all, if I didn't want to work on young kids, I'd hire me an associate that would. Okay? okay. Because remember, the two segments that are growing and will grow are kids and adults over 64. So I would become very proficient in doing geriatric dentistry, whatever manner that might be, and how to attract that, that segment of the, of the population. So that's one thing, and that's to get more patients in, into the practice. Like I say, if you don't want to do kids, get someone that does. Let them, because what you want to try to do is drag their parents in, and then their friends, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think critical skills needed for the future that few, they certainly don't get it in dental school, and I tell them this is what they need to, to think about. It's motivational interviewing and emotional intelligence training. And if, you, if your members haven't taken classes in those two subjects, they need to. I think that's critical uh, for the future. I think they need to also look at um, how to have, you know, because consumer buying patterns are changing. 
and how you position yourself inside of that to be able to take advantage uh, of people that now it's all across healthcare. I mean, if somebody has something or been told they have something, the first thing they do is get on the internet. They're looking at it. Well, think about the they need a crown or root canal or whatever it is, periodontal, whatever. They're going on. We're seeing more and more consumers going on the internet and and then coming to the office better educated about healthcare, oral health. And so you need to be you need to prepare yourself to to help them get that information they need. And so those are. Um, those are things that they can easily do. Uh, doesn't take a whole bunch of stuff. But I'd also look at these other. Um, I, I mean, I would personally be doing uh, blood sugars uh, and uh, making referrals. Um, I mean, you, you you could set up a mini lab, um, blood lab in your office. There's no reason why you can't do that. Um, I mean, some states may have some. Um, legislation or laws that uh, preclude that. You may have to have a laboratory um, manager or something like that, but there are things like that out there that, um, that not many, let me tell you, there's not many people that do it, and uh, if you want to think about getting ahead of the curve, that would be one of the way, ways to do it. And then look at some of the ways, finally look at some of the ways to help people pay for their, for their care, and whether that's a um, a plan, a discount within the office discount plan, um, because that again, that's going to drag in patients uh, to your practice. But they've just got to really watch what's going on inside and outside the profession, and see what how how they fit within that big picture. I mean, it is changing so rapidly. Um, they really need to pay attention. Well, Dr. Dickinson, you've been a, a wealth of information. I suspect that you could go on for a couple more hours. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah. you've done a great job of encapsulating in the last hour some of the the things that I think many of us have suspected, but if you're working in a practice by yourself every day, you don't get the kind of view of it that you do uh, working across to, you know, a, a broader audience. So certainly given us a lot to think about and certainly some good points for planning in the future, and uh, I want to especially thank you for taking your time today, and uh, thank Dr. Bruce Hutchinson, who recommended that you spend some time with us today. Bruce has been a, a great Crown Council member for many, many years, and uh, very active in the profession, and very vocal, and uh, encouraging everyone else to be very active as well. Good. And I appreciate uh, you taking the time with us today and sharing your wisdom. Thanks for being our Crown Council Mentor of the Month today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me.